I'm Dr Luke Evans and this is my new podcast, Doctor in the House. I worked as a GP before being elected as an MP for Bosworth in 2019. In my new series, I'm joined by fellow MPs, famous faces and just some of the extraordinary people I've come across in my job. We'll be discussing everything from mental health to body image to life as an MP. New episodes are released every fortnight on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on social media at Dr Luke Evans and find out more on my website drlukeevans.org.uk. For the next episode of Doctor in the House, I'm joined by Dr Sharon Redrow, who is the CEO of Twycross Zoo in my constituency of Bosworth since 2013. Now, Sharon has over 25 years of experience working in academia, the charity sector, businesses, and is, of course, a passionate advocate for animal welfare. Sharon was appointed OBE in the Queen's New Year's Honours List in 2017 for her service to skills, science and economy and has won a whole host of industrial awards um, as her time as a CEO. Now, in October, we had the exciting news that Twycross Zoo was awarded £19.9 million in the Leveling Up Fund for a National Science and Conservation Centre, which will become a hub for conservation locally nationally and internationally. Now, Sharon, we're certainly going to be talking about that in the podcast later on. But can we hear a little bit more about your career? Getting to spend every day surrounded by penguins, monkeys, lions, great apes is a dream for many. But of course, it's a reality for you. Can you give me a flavour of how you got into this role and and how your career's progressed? Yeah, I I think... It is as good as it sounds, <laughs> and I have to, I have to always remind myself of that, of that, and pinch myself when I just get stuck in the office and deluged with emails and the boring end but important end of the job. That um, I'm doing exactly what I always wanted to do, which is, which is surrounded by animals and trying to save the planet. Where did passion come from? Tell me where you know. Tell me how did you develop that passion for animals? Well, just, I mean, it's, it's kind of a boring story, I guess, but it, it it really is. You know, I think as soon as I could walk and talk, I was bringing worms into the house and showing my mum them and um, and digging digging things up and um, just really into nature. And I think uh, being quite bright at school, the, the minute the school starts talking about any kind of career, it was kind of doctor or vet, you know, and, and no offence to your chosen profession, Luke, you know, um, I'll do, I'd rather do stuff with animals, you know, so it was, it was, it was, it was given to me, you know, oh, you must be a vet then. And then of course, you know, from about the age of seven, it was kind of, oh, I'm going to be a vet then. Well, isn't it right that, um, uh, as a slight tangent, I think vets are the only people who are also allowed to uh, actually uh, operate and, and, and take part on animals, uh, whereas doctors aren't. Is that, that, that's my understanding, isn't it? With, yeah, with permission, we can operate on a human, but you can never operate on an animal. Yeah, so we never, win. Never, ever. No, my whippets <laughs> will be very pleased to hear that. So they're, they're getting off safe from there. Um, but talk, talk me through. It's one thing to, uh, you know, OK, say you've got a passion for, for the uh, and the ability to be able to get into that role. But how do you actually go about getting into your role? Can you give me a potted history of how you end up running one of these, you know, forefront zoos? Yeah, I, ne- I never thought I'd run a zoo, actually. And I think... Um, you know, from going from a, as a really young girl, just interested in animals, and someone says, "Oh, you ought to be a vet," then and, and hanging around at my local vets, and you know, not really interested in dogs and cats because I was reading mostly Jane Goodall's books about living in Africa with chimpanzees. So I kind of wanted to be her, and then, <laughs> and then 
And then really, I guess, lucky is a series of chances, isn't it? Age 14, the vet I was working with was on Jane Goodall's trustee board and said, guess who's coming for tea? Do you want to join me? So I met her, you know, age 14, 15, and she's like, what do you want to do? I want to be a vet. And she said, oh, good, we need more vets looking after wildlife and, and animals. And, um, and, I th- and I think as soon as I got into vet school, it was, it was just all about wildlife. It wasn't about doing dogs and cats and horses, pigs and sheep, but that's, that's what you're taught. Um, but I spent most of my time hit, either hitting the books or, or trying to get over to America where the, the field was a little bit, bit more advanced. I mean, it is now. Um, but then you weren't taught anything about those weird and wonderful animals. So that that's that's kind of how I got through that. And I think, you know, I was a student in London in the 80s. I had a lovely time, <laughs> um, I'd say. I had pink hair. And um, apart from that, didn't hit many lectures um, and became, you know, probably naturally anti-zoo because passionate about animal welfare, passionate about animals in the wild. Why would I want to see animals in cages? Um, and at that time, and probably still now, zoos were exceptionally poor at talking about conservation and the conservation work that they are set up to do nowadays. And it's not the Victorian show and tell of animals in cages. And in fact, you know, the, I, you know, I still say now that the zoos that do that should be shut. You should only be operating as a conservation charity and doing doing meaningful breeding work. So I, so I kind of, I kind of fell into that trap and as a passionate anti-zoo person, but wanting to work with them as a vet and, and spend time in Africa. And then, and then through my career, I think, you know, it's about finding the jobs as well. I, I, I went to Edinburgh University to teach zoo and wildlife medicine. So I was kind of teaching straight away. One of the first ones, well, so we set up that course at Edinburgh, which is the first one in the UK. What as a vet then went on to, to teach? Is that the way it sort of got yeah. you? Or? I've just always had, always broke the rules, Luke, I guess. So I was flicking through the back of the vet record, which is our, our mag, um, for jobs as a final year graduate, about to be. I was in the final year and they were advertising a job at Edinburgh University and Edinburgh Zoo. And I was saying, even though I was anti-zoo, I was very well aware for my training to work with wildlife, I'd probably need to work in a zoo. So I was kind of doing it a bit through gritted, gritted teeth. And the job was, you know, experienced person, blah, de blah, lectureship, blah, de blah. So I phoned up and started talking to them. And then I sort of mentioned I was still a final year. And they kind of swallowed and didn't stop me applying. And I obviously blagged, I always say I blagged my way everywhere. Got the job. Got the job as a new graduate. I spent three months in general practice doing dogs and cats at my home practice with that guy that had introduced me to Jane Goodall, you know. But then he sent me on my way kind of thing. So I spent... Shape from there. Yeah, that's really interesting because from my career as well, so I was, you know, went to medical school in Birmingham and spent all my time, did my five years, then two years as uh, as a foundation year doctor. And I thought I was going to go down the line of A&E. That's where I seem to be most interested. But then interestingly, I uh, applied to get onto the GP side and spotted, uh, wasn't sure if it was what I wanted to do, got onto the course, but actually... At the same time, though, uh, I decided to apply for a teaching role at the University of Birmingham to teach anatomy and uh, to first and second year medical students. And uh, I got offered that and enjoyed that and spent a year doing it and then decided I want to go to the GP line. What is it that made you want to be sort of an educator then? I think that's really interesting because there's clearly a parity between that. It sounds like, you know, vets heavily academic and then play hard, work hard and then move in. Medicine's very similar. But what made you want to become an educator from that side? 
I don't I don't know if I I don't I don't know if I, I would have said I wanted to. I think it was just more um you know what wanted to move into the the wildlife space. Um absolutely I'd spent so I spent 6 years at, at uni because we we could intercalate so I you know yeah. kind of out for a year went to Kings did physiology came came back in and finished the vet degree. And, and in that kind of gap and all my holidays was flying to America to, for me to get my education in, in wildlife medicine because it, it wasn't being taught in the UK anywhere. No one had a module on it. Oh, so, so I kind of majored on that in my interview at Edinburgh University going, you ought to be teaching this. You know, we're 20 years behind America. You know, we need to be in the middle of a biodiversity crisis. You know, we need vets in this space and nobody's going to be graduating knowing a, knowing a thing if they're graduating from the UK unless they're kind of self-taught like me so far so they took me on and said write, write the program then so so that's so that's why I ended up in teaching I think is that I'm passionate I was passionate about how we're going to save wildlife we need vets in that as well they've all got to fly to America to get some training then that's ridiculous so a vet school needs to be setting it up um so take me on and I'll do it, you know, kind of for you, aged, you know, 24 and then you graduate. <laughs> How does that lead you to end up as a CEO running a, a zoo? To, uh, what, what's the pathway to, to, to get there? Because then, um, yes, so we sort of kind of did that and then did that for 20 odd years. Um, set it up at Edinburgh, set it up at Bristol Vet School and then... And, Bristol Zoo work and and you know then I got to go to Cameroon for the first time from Bristol Zoo and work with gorillas and chimpanzees in the wild and I'm still involved with them um and then it was I'm, I'm clearly working at zoos despite not having liked them initially um, and I was very much we could probably tell I'm not a very good backseat driver I was kind of <laughs> you know if zoos are going to do what they say on the tin which is we are you know a captive breeding pot an ark I'm really keen to have that that debate there but what what when did you get the skill set then or how did you develop the skill set to transition from clearly quite having a, a very academic and educational set to get into suddenly policy role you know running a, a you know a, a, a charity business well, organization really yeah well, it's this, I don't know. It's this, I don't know if you feel like this as a doctor as well. You know, it's the same skill set for me in my head. You know, it's like I was a very good clinician. I was also academic and teaching and written papers and books and stuff. But I, I, I enjoy being on the clinic and fixing animals. Yep. You know, and and to do that, you know, you can read all the textbooks, can't you, and everything. But then once you get in front of a, an animal or a human you've suddenly you've got to make decisions you've got to coalesce lots of information and decide which way to go and especially you know if you're dealing with animals or or a sick human you know you make, you make a mistake it's quite serious but not making a decision is a problem you know you've just got to do it and and then for me you know business it's kind of the same it's you've got lo loads of problems loads of people can tell you all the problems and all you know spin around but you've got to you've got to coalesce that into a treatment plan I think you're right because I find that in the crossover from being a, a GP into an MP there's a lot of similarities being able to communicate with people you know I'm a generalist so I'm never a specialist in anything so I constantly speak to if it was surgeons telling me the most technical information down to the public or the public trying to transmit it the other way and make that coherent but you're you're right also dealing with risk and problem solving putting it all together those are a skill set that I think 
the medicine and sciences we have and pull in and does fit in business and does fit in policy and even to a certain extent politics I guess the only difference is at the end of a dealing with someone in uh, in medicine I don't suddenly go right now will you vote for me I do that in <laughs> politics which is always an interesting angle but now you've I mean you, you've been at Twycross there what it, what's it you're most proud of uh, when, it, when being at the zoo? Oh it's a tricky question I think initially saving it because the board of trustees took a, a real punt on on appointing me as CEO, not only my first CEO job, but, but an organisation that was quite troubled and needed to be completely transformed. And I think I've been acting as a consultant on the side with my kind of zoo and wildlife hat on and, and gone, you know, deconstructed it as a business plan, really, and said, you know, this, you you. The, we know all the problems, lack of money and, and a falling down zoo and it's fallen behind and it's got no plan, but it's just money. <laughs> you just you have to have a vision in order to then go out and ask for money and deliver on it. You, you can't get in a spin saying we've got the money, there's no point planning. And I think that's where they'd got to. So I'd I'd help put them a business plan together because I'm quite nerdy, obviously, which is the science background. And I like I like to analyse that things and make them simple like you just said actually and I think that's why you get in a space with clients is that you've got to synthesize complex information and make it simple that's your job yeah I love that part of it and that's what this is very you know very complex things lots of moving parts lots of problems but yeah but what's the number of the issue right we need a plan we need a plan that then will create um, a really successful zoo that is not that, but for me, it was, you know, not just a commercial entity, an absolute conservation charity that runs a zoo. That well, was... that's really interesting. Now, let's circle around to that point, because <laughs> I must say, when you first, uh, you know, uh, it's great to have Twycross in um, uh, in my passion to be representative of a zoo. But I, I must say, I initially came in with that concept of zoos or is this going to be tricky? Some people love them. Some people hate them. You know, what is the role of a zoo? And very quickly it became apparent, um, you know, that there are good zoos and there are not good zoos. Uh, can we get into this argument of of where do you see zoos fitting? What do you say to those people nowadays who say there is no place for a zoo fundamentally because you are keeping and caging animals? Right. I would say now, you know, all that stuff is I would it was very relevant in the 40s and 50s right I would say now you know 2022 if we didn't have zoos we would be inventing something very like them as a hedge against the extinction crisis so physically having the animals breeding in in um, sustainable breeding programs for a hundred years which we do have scientifically backed, you know, breeding programs for all the major species. So they will be here for a hundred years. They might only exist in zoos, which is pants, <laughs> not the situation I want. But you, you cannot make the decision, you know, for the planet to say. And I have this with colleagues, respected colleagues. I've grown up really with more than one foot in the wild, uh, anti-zoo world. I fully know those arguments, but I am not one that would say I'd rather gorillas are extinct than only exist in zoos. That's so very a, extreme. A, a, a lifeboat issue, uh, you know, that you are the ark to, to keep it going. Exactly, exactly. And and I don't want that to be the case. You said, you know, how, I wish there wasn't a need for zoos. I would rather position us as hospitals. There is a problem. We are part of the solution. We are not part of the problem anymore. We are part of the solution to the extinction crisis both with keeping the, the live animals extant 
and in educating the public, which is super important, and policymakers like you, <laughs> because because if you don't change hearts and minds on this, we've kind of lost. And if we have half a million or a million people coming through every year, that's that's a huge chunk of the population we can educate on how we can why we should save animals and how we can do it. So that for me, that is the role of the modern zoo. That's all that I'm interested in. And I think when I inherited, if you like slightly broken twy cross zoo it was it was interesting because one of the trustees said the problem is it's a charity and as i know the problem is it's it's not been well run but actually they should only be charities or they should only be for for the benefit of the planet and i kind of wanted to demonstrate with absolutely very little experience to that point i've been on senior management teams and advising teams for a, a couple of major zoos and, and I'd run clinics and I'd done the business planning for running clinics, but I guess that was my business experience. But, you know, the scientist in me was able to deconstruct, approach it like that, you know, approach it like a case, you deconstruct what's wrong, what's really broken, what's the solution. And I said, I, I can demonstrate how you can run a successful conservation charity zoo that's commercially successful and doesn't lose its way. How do you assess the, the global side of biodiversity, this protection of, of animals? I, I mean, are you optimistic for the future? Have we done enough? I mean, these are big questions that are being asked. Where do you see the, the, the role going for species, particularly the ones you look after, like the four great apes? But, but, but more generally, uh, has the world woken up to it? Because there does seem to have been a shift in the last sort of 20 years of people understanding this. But have, uh, are we on to it? it? It's 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 got it's got worse in my kind of conscious lifetime because it was just kind of vaguely talked about and it, it and it's escalating you know I was on I was at, I was at the beach at the weekend there is plastic being washed up on our shores there wasn't when I was growing up there just wasn't we didn't forget there just wasn't and it was talked about when I was a teenager that will approach saturation point and plastic will start coming out of the sea and it sounded like science fiction it's actually happening so you know it's got worse in my lifetime but what's really exciting is clinging to the hope and the solutions you know humans are a really bright ape you know we've 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 made a lot of mistakes because we've fallen into it and we've kind of out, outgrown our resources on the planet we can certainly put the solutions in place and i think having having cop 26 um you know, on main media, talking about biodiversity crisis and climate crisis is really important. It's not a niche student topic now. You know, it is a mainstream topic and businesses are taking it seriously. I sit on the uh, local CBI board as well and it's on the agenda and it's not on the agenda as a tick box exercise. It's really on the agenda because if you take it even a medium term view even from a business perspective you know we we need to be saving the planet otherwise um you know businesses are going to go bust and countries are going to go bust so it's really focused minds that it's got to break point but then i have hope that we are talking about it it's all about how we how we move forward from here and how we we do reverse climate change obviously my interest in climate change is, is that we're not all going to die um but that that we, that we can reverse um, or stop the biodiversity crisis so i i'm delighted it's almost like the stuff i'm interested in is suddenly mainstream it's unfortunately suddenly mainstream because it's a big problem 
but now we're focusing on solutions. Great. And you're right. And it seems that certainly in, in, in my role as an MP, I see it all the way from the, the big top policy stuff of what governments put into the, the Midlands engine and their green plan of how we grow our economy, but still have it green, but then step it down into businesses. You're right. But then even, you know, schools getting involved, write to me uh, and visit about their plastic recycling and then even individuals about how can they make more of it. And I guess that's the whole point, isn't it, is trying to break it down, because sometimes on something as big as this, you know, saving species, uh, getting rid of plastic, it sometimes seems such a big problem. But actually, if you break it down to small practical things that everyone can do, separate your, uh, you know, uh, separate your recycling, make sure that you do use, um, don't use one time use plastic and all this kind of thing that incrementally, if everyone's doing it, uh, will, will make a significant impact. And I guess that implies into some of your role as a zoo in terms of your breeding programmes and things like that. Is that a fair sort of analysis of, of, of how you, you put that in place? No, but absolutely brilliant. And, you know, it's it's that think global at local. It, it's trying not to, to, to give the message and then it's so negative it turns people off. You know, when you just get this fatigue, I just don't want to hear about the negative message anymore. And they turn off and don't engage. So it, it's a th it's a fine line with everybody. But, you know, little things make a difference. Now, there's seven billion odd of us, you know, and, and it's like it's like a joke. But, you know, it's only one more plastic straw said seven billion people. I think there's so many of us You make a little difference. It really does make a big difference. And that's the message we need to get across. So people that used to yeah, deal with recycling were, were weird greenies. You know, and again, you know, partly it's legislation and, and making it easy for people. So we have curbside recycling, you know, and we, you know, we have uh, fines. You know, we stopped plastic bags a while ago or they, there was a charge attached to them. Made a massive difference, massive difference. Um, so, you know, we can do it, but it, it does need to be a real mix of policy change, bit of legislation, making it easy for people to do the right thing, not just keep beating everybody up that it, everything's awful, because I think we'll, we'll just lose people then. And that's our challenge at the zoo. We want to talk about the messages of, it, of extinction, but also, but, but kind of go, it's what you can do to make it better. You know, even visiting the zoo, you know, we're keeping these species going and it's we're doing the best we can. And this is why we have them in captivity. Um, and some of them will go back to the wild. Many of them won't. That's not a failure. You need quite a large pot of animals to be able to release a few back. Um, so it's, it's getting simple messages over and then more complex messages over um, and, and kind of speaking to the heart as well as the head. That's fantastic. You've been listening to Dr. Luke Evans and Dr. Shan Redrobe, who's CEO of Twycross, talking in my podcast, Doctor in the House, which is downloadable on all your normal podcast channels. Sharon, I'd like to come back now to some good news that we had. You've had a recent newborn in Twycross. Isn't that right? Can you tell us a little bit more? We have a baby bonobo. Um... Because you have an amazing uh, set. I mean, you, this, the selling point is the four great apes. For those people listening at home wondering what the hell does that mean, and you've got a new bonobo, talk us through what that looks like. Well, you know, we're, we're an ape. Um, you know, we, we, monkeys have tails, apes do not. So that makes us an ape. Um, so the other apes in our family are gorillas, people often familiar with gorillas, uh, chimpanzees, people tend to know what they are, orangutans, the big ginger ones, um, and then most people haven't heard of bonobo. And on our family tree, we're closer related to bonobo than chimpanzees are to gorilla. Is that right? This is kind of freaky. But this is when you're just talking about, you know, percentages of DNA and what have you. But, but yeah, if you look at the family tree, that's what happened. We're obviously, you know, quite different. But 
bonobos and chimpanzees uh, were once one species and then it all split off and humans went one way and bonobos and chimpanzees split into bonobos and chimpanzees so chimpanzees are really noisy um obviously big black hairy ones um in africa but very very noisy very aggressive male dominated big family groups um it in throughout uh, the middle band of africa kind of coast to coast and then there's just one area in the congo where bonobos evolved and it's thought to be because there's no other predator there initially there wasn't any gorilla habitat there and obviously humans came later anyway and and bonobos formed a very different society they walk upright a bit more they were thought to be the missing link when they were the last ape to be discovered in the early part of the um, 20th century um they walk more upright they're a bit more slender and they are female dominated and they're quiet and they kind of squeak rather than call like chimps so similar but really quite different quite distinctly different in that and and can you talk to those four sets then what what's the global picture look like and what have you got actually at, at, at twycross zoo so uh, could you talk about how how threatened they are or not are they flourishing and, and what does that look like when you've got a, a you know um uh, I'm not sure. Is it troops? Do you call them troops? Uh, Talk about uh, whether it should be families, troops, or what have you? You know, I just I don't care about <laughs> about the labels. Um, but yeah, families, whichever. Um, so um, unfortunately, the UN um, put out a, a report which is now ten years old, saying that the great apes could likely be extinct within twenty years. Gosh which was just awful and that's only 10 years away now things have improved a wee bit but the main problem is habitat loss if there's no home for them and you need a lot of forest to support a great ape you can stick them out so some of these release programs put some gorillas back in an area of forest in africa but if you have to feed them every day because that forest won't support them it's not really release and I think it can give false hope so we, we do absolutely need to work on keeping the standing forest still up it take you know you can grow trees quite quickly but they're not, not going to be fruiting trees that can support a family of great apes um, you know that takes about 100 years to mature a forest to that extent and you need acres and acres and acres per family so that's the main that's the main crisis and it's it's not irreversible, but it's really challenging. So keep the forests up, um, have have those countries, allow those countries to be able to value their wildlife. You know, if we're going to pay money for them for their wood, they're going to cut it down. You know, it's kind of our fault. Most of it is exported to Europe or the West. Um, whereas, you know, how can we pay countries to keep their forests standing? How They're not all going to be tourism places. You can't habituate all your gorillas for tourism and David Attenborough, you know, but um, some of that can happen as well. And that kind of monetizes the wildlife, but it's a complex problem. And zoos are just one tiny piece of the picture. I think that's what's important to, to emphasize as well. We, we can't be everything to everybody and we don't run other countries. What we can do is our bit and the bit that a modern conservation zoo could, could, should do only, you know, is we keep the animals in a breeding pot and we educate public and try and influence policy. 
so that's really interesting. I mean, can, can you do you have the to, to hand the, the the numbers of the, the four great apes that you have the chimpanzees? How, how many do you have in the zoo? What's a normal? Is it keep two on their own, or is it a keeper? You know, uh, uh, forty two all at once. Uh, give us a yeah. sense of. It's, it's, it's a good it's a good question. And so what we're trying to do is keep them not just keep the 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 bodies alive and their genes going for a hundred odd years genetically is also keep the behaviour going. You know, that needs to be lo yep. not lost so they can be reintroduced or we're just keeping, we're still keeping chimps, we're not having zoo chimps. So we, we do try to keep them as naturalistic as possible and they're different. So chimpanzees, multi-age, multi-sex groups led by uh, a male, but they, they choose that themselves. We have very little influence on that behaviour, which is great. We worked for the last um, eight or ten years at Twycross. We did have them all in twos and threes um, across the site because it's easy um, and easy to do. They don't fight if you do that. And it's quite scary to see chimps fighting. But I mean, I they think scream at each other. It's, uh, it is, it's quite impressive. It's like handbag fighting when they're screaming and shouting, you know. Um, <laughs> they can really lay into each other. And it's frightening for humans to see and tolerate. And I think what David Attenborough has done recently is, is stop doing the kind of isn't nature lovely um, Disneyfication all the time and actually show us animals fighting animals injuring each other even death um, because we need we need to understand the full picture of nature so that's always a challenge for zoos how far do we let fights go bearing in mind it's natural we want them to develop a whole range of natural behaviors so we have to tolerate say these hard stuff really we have to we have to tolerate a degree of fighting if it's natural and and it is in a very large group so the larger the group the possible for chimpanzees um, and then it's really hard to integrate chimpanzees to other chimpanzees. It takes years. We've still got four now to get into the main group and it's year five because you've got to go slowly, slowly, slowly or, or, or there'll be too many injuries to tolerate. Bonobos, and we, we need to introduce the animals to get them into the biggest group possible. And we brought a German male over <laughs> as fresh genes uh, for, for breeding. So it's that kind of thing goes on. The bonobos, though, you know, similar but different, female-led, lots of non-reproductive sexual activities, the polite way of saying it, to resolve conflict. Uh, they do fight, but not as much. And right. they and they actively, you open and shut the doors, you keep them as two groups, but once or twice a year, you deliberately mix them and you literally just open the door and they they come in, they all have sex with each other, um, lots of squeaking and they will settle down again wow do that with a chimp group there would be carnage so we have to understand the difference of behaviors we have to work you know with the animals and let them be who they are if you don't mix and remix bonobos they stop breeding after about 18 months they get bored with each other that's really interesting. Uh, I mean, do you have a favourite uh, of all, the, all the, the the apes that you look after? Do you have a favourite? Uh, I can't possibly tell you I have a favourite child, Luke. You know because that would be That's awful. But it's chimpanzees. <laughs> is, is there a specific chimpanzee at Twycross that you have a favourite? Oh, Coco is our older lady. She's fifty-four, so we're very much aligned, I have to say. Um, and that used to be ancient for chimpanzees like it used to be ancient for humans you know and we've we're reaching 100 years sometimes now quite often because of really good healthcare, really good diet no predators very little disease and the same thing seems to be happening with our closest cousins at least in zoos 
must pose a real difficult problem then because tell the audience you know what how long would these they tend to live in the wild versus now they live in captivity and the problems that poses well you know in the wild if you get a bit of arthritis and you can't get up the tree you might not be able to eat you know if you get a bit of dental disease and your teeth fall out or in a lot of pain you're just in a lot of pain if you fall out of the tree and break your leg you might die so um, not 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 all of them make it to adulthood and the ones that make it to adulthood um, as soon as they get a bit elderly and diseased can you know can even starve to death or um, especially if it's a male on male chimpanzee situation uh, a young male coming up for the ranks will just kill a weaker older male and obviously in captivity we have lots of ethical and moral challenges really with that kind of thing you know that would be very natural. Crikey, could we ever allow that kind of thing to go on? So we kind of don't. Um, so we treat their arthritis, we treat their heart disease, we treat we have dentists come in and treat their dental disease. If they we do make them climb, and Coco, our our, our old lady, um, you know, climbs around, is in great condition, you know, she does better than me. She gets up a seven-meter pole. I'm like, I couldn't do that. Um um, and and that's why they're living um, longer and longer. And um, I think the problem it's given us is is capacity. Then we kind of need more zoos in some way because we've now got great apes living into their fifties and sixties, whereas naturally they'd probably not live past thirty five. Some would, but a lot wouldn't. Um, they're non breeding by that age as well. So we're going to have 20 years of non-breeding chimps taking up rooms. So you need retirement homes for the chimps. Is that, is that right? <laughs> yeah, you know, and then you can't, you don't want to move them on because they're well bonded to the group. You just need more and more space, which is going to cost more and more money. And if you're running it as a hard-nosed business, that's not economic. It's on to the, you know, a, a really important point because you've, and I'm really intrigued to see how this will work because you've just talked about you know, in huge depth about the studying and the learning that you've done. And of course, um, Twycross is, is going to receive or has received £19.9 million for this um, Conservation Education Centre. And I guess the whole point is trying to learn more about what you've just been talking about so that we know how to reintroduce. Actually, we know how to study what's needed and the fact that bonobos are very different from chimpanzees and what that looks like. Uh, are we? Am I on the right line with that? Can you talk to a little bit how this centre makes a difference and what you expect it to do, not only for the UK, but for the world in terms of conservation? Well, thank you for your support on that, though, Luke. I have to give you full credit for that. It was just awesome, all the work you're doing for the region and our area. And... Checks in the post, dear. Checks in the post. <laughs> Thanks very much. Course, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the we can talk. You know, we can talk to each other, and we can and we can have the animals. Um, but then, what's the next phase? And for us, the next phase was get the scientists together. We're not we're not going to become a university, um, but we need to get scientists on to what we're interested in and solving the problems of the biodiversity crisis and climate change. And we went out to consultation before 19, so for a couple of years and ended up at the end of 19 with a, a lovely plan that we launched at the House of Lords, as you know, um, on what we what what the country needs at the moment is a national hub that scientists can come together and focus on the biodiversity crisis. We've got the four great apes, and it, it sounds like you know a mantra, but it's true. If you can't save your closest cousins, what can we do? 
You know, if we can't save the iconic great apes, what can't, what are we doing? So, you know, obviously we're very passionate at Twycross. So we work with a number of um, national and international universities already. But what they're saying to us, what we really need is more space. We need more laboratory space, more classrooms so we can do our training and teaching. We need overnight accommodation so our students can stay and do longer term studies. We can attract internationals as well as nationals from all over the country. So that's that's where this idea of a national conservation centre developed. And of course, as well as us having the animals, um, including the only place in the UK with all four great apes, we're right in the heart of the country, which is the you know logistic triangle of the UK. So dead easy to get to. So we, we had all the concept, we had all the plans drawn up. And of course, then COVID hit. And then where's the funding going to come from? And delighted that you and then government recognised this is a great opportunity for levelling up fund to make a real difference. We've got the plan and the ideas. And of course, the growth of us as a tourist attraction and a national science hub is great for the for the local economy. So well, I mean, it gives jobs, doesn't it? It gives a place for tourism where people stay over. But fundamentally, it sounds like the, the key point is is putting these signs together to, to do the research. Now, is it, can I ask, is it more based, are you aiming it more towards the education of the next year's, uh, you know, the, the future conservationists? Or actually, is it trying to learn very much um, about the the apes and uh, and the species that you have on show? I mean, what's that, what's that balance? How, how's it set? Is it 50-50? Is it much more emphasised towards habitat and understanding the the um, the animals you have uh, in the zoo or is it much more about general un, uh, you know appreciation of the process like a veterinary studies will have gone through can you talk us through what it, what is it you envisage it actually doing well we we need to do all those things um so and it's where and how and which bit does that which arm of our organization does that now if you like so you know the gruffalo land concept is get kids in early interested in nature uh, you know only only if you're interested in care will you even try and save them or want to be a scientist when you grow up so really engage the young ones that's why the rest of the zoo is you know here, here's the animals you can hear all the stories you can find your favorite you can research you know why is it going extinct or what can we do to help what what's the role of zoos etc that's the point of the whole zoo and then the National Science Conservation Centre will have the classrooms in it, the laboratory space for the scientists and, uh, and the students to do science, to create the solutions to the problems. I can't tell you what they are because the scientists need to come up with that. But we can take people on that journey. We can give them the facilities and we can inject the enthusiasm so that we will... And through the synergy of getting several universities to work together, you know, like with a jam in the sandwich, that's where the the spark and the innovation is going to come from. So that's the point of the National Science Conservation Centre. And, you know, it, it will bleed out from that. We'll have we'll have education of school kids in there. We'll have training of BSc, MSc and PhD programmes in there. We'll have postdoc work doing kind of real meaningful science, real world application stuff as well. Hello, I'm Dr Luke Evans, and this is my new podcast, Doctor in the House. I worked as a GP before being elected as an MP for Bosworth in 2019. In my new series, I'm joined by fellow MPs, famous faces, and just some of the extraordinary people I've come across in my job. Now, Sharon, this is a nice segue into it because you've talked very heavily about the education um, and the STEM aspect of it, the science side of things. Now, being a woman leader in science, how has that been as a career going forward? Um, 
It's not, I, I'm not as odd one out as I was when I started. Yeah. Um, you know, when I went, when I first went to vet school, well, I was pushed heavily to go into medical school, which I had no intention of doing, no offence. <laughs> <laughs> I was a bit like, isn't, isn't, isn't veterinary, you know, it's James Herriot territory. It's a boy thing to do. Um, and I was, well, yeah, but I'm not going to do farm animal anyway. I want to do wildlife. Um, and I, you know, I need to be a vet. So when I went to vet school, there were um, about 10, there were 10 girls and 50 boys in my year. Um, by the time I graduated, it was going 50-50. And now the vet profession is becoming female dominated. There's a parity in medicine, actually, as well in the, in the crossover. So um, it used to be a very heavily male dominated thing. Now, actually, there's much more medical students coming through. I think certainly where in my five years, it changed from about 60, 40 uh, female to male to about 70, 30 in my medical school. And I think there is very much a, an interest. I mean, do you have any insight and uh, you know, no expertise necessary on, on why that might be the case? It's great to see so many more um, women stepping into the role, particularly around veterinary and, and medical side. Do you, do you think there's a reason for that? Do you have any insight into why that might be? I'd, I'd like to say it's because all the gateway programmes everyone did about diversity and gender equality worked. I, I think there's maybe, but also, I mean, I was told at vet school it was a male profession, so that doesn't help you even try, does it? But And, and, that, and that perception has, has changed or been changed. But I, I do think it's almost become a, a barrier to boys. Can I put it that way? I think I certainly saw it um, on the interview panels. We were almost having a crisis that we wouldn't get a male rugby team out of some of the years because there were so few boys. Because as a way of selecting the best student, the grade, the grade requirement was going up and it just seems to be girls are more nerdy at 17, 18 and are more likely to get the high grade A levels. So it, it poses a really interesting policy dilemma going forward, doesn't it? Uh, I think that's we'll probably park that for for another time. But leading on that, how has it been? How do you uh, you 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 know you were lucky enough to be uh, awarded an OBE for your work? Talk us through what, why did you get an OBE and what's that meant? Does it open doors? What does it look like in terms of recognition for women uh, in leadership roles? Um, oh, well, I was obviously delighted, humbled, and surprised to get it, um, and it's amazing. I think I think it's I think it's it, obviously it's in, it's in recognition of what I've been doing, which is I've always never just done the day job. Uh, well, tell us more about that because it was it's skills, science, and the economy was it? it, it that was the, the bracket. But what does that mean for those listening at home? I don't know. You have to probably have to ask the one. <laughs> um, but the um, it, it, yeah, it was around. I believe it's around. Well, it's around the turnaround of Twycrossu and, and talking up conservation and educating school kids. I was also involved with the the LEP, the local enterprise partnership, and writing the tourism and hospitality plan. And then I was also uh, I, I won business woman of the year in 2015, much to my surprise. And I don't. I think like uh, when I said at the beginning, I'd rather there weren't zoos, but they're like hospitals. And if they didn't exist, we'd, we'd create them now. I wish there weren't women in business awards because there shouldn't be, because it basically means, you know, either we, we're we not good enough to apply for the men's awards or, you know, what's, what's the problem? But there is a problem, but there is a problem, you know, and I, I had a guy saying something like that to me about, well, you know, there's not, there aren't women in there aren't men in business events. And I said to him, I'm in one, look around. And I was at a CBI event. No, I mean, I love the CBI, but 
look around, there's only two females in a room of at least 100 men. And I know that's not anybody's fault, particularly in that moment. But, you know, that's why those, those, they can be quite intimidating to join a board or a club of any sort if you're going to be the minority. And and then that's holding women back in lots of different ways. And, And still in the workplace, you know, there is, there is, Still, unfortunately, we like to feel we're a modern world and we've legislated against issues, but, you know, women hold themselves back from promotion, but also they're not, they're less likely to be promoted. And I think we we do need to look at that. Um, Every profession I've worked in as a vet, uh, as uh, working in academia, um, at the zoo, you know, it's almost like there's plenty of women or as equal genders at the bottom, but as you go further up, the women thin out and it becomes male-dominated, you know, what's going on. I think there's there's lots of society stuff. You know, if you have a baby, um, the woman takes time off work, not the man. I mean, it's great now in the UK, we've got better paternity and maternity leave, and that's brilliant, because that's what we need to do. We need to support the men to do the parenting if they want to. So it's not just the women that have to make that choice. Um and career gaps, what does that look like? Um, job sharing, you know, uh, work, work from home, different hours, flexibility, all that work for women if they're taking a caring role would help them keep their careers on track. I don't I don't think women are less ambitious. I think it's almost drilled out of us from an early age not to be as ambitious. What piece of advice would you give to, to, to any uh, you know young woman leader out there who wants to step into the role, either through the veterinary side or, or running a business or a charity? Is there a piece of advice that you think you'd you would have given yourself, you know, twenty years ago? I'm I'm, I'm sorry, it's difficult because it still is, and I think those of us that are in leadership positions do need to be visible, and I you know I I did at one point. Th- think you know why do we need more women in business awards why do I need to go to yet another keynote and talk about what's it like because there's still an issue because we still don't have equality in the number of women in leadership positions therefore there's still a problem and um, we can legislate and what have you but I think visible role models makes a real difference so I kind of want to apologize to my you know peers and and women coming through i'm sorry if it's still difficult but please you know put yourself out there you need to well you did that because i mean uh, for those of you who haven't seen it uh, sharon spoke uh, has was invited to speak on ted um a, a great platform for exposing ideas uh, and people leading in their fields i mean how, how was that to, to go up on ted were you nervous speaking about what you're passionate about i mean that's a great example of, of putting yourself out there and speaking to the world about something you you you'll care passionately about um well yeah I, I i do care passionately about what i was talking about so i think that makes it a lot easier um and and i do i do understand and i i am an advocate of we still need role models it's not it's not this kind of um, British and certainly sometimes female British thing of keep your head down and, and be shy and modest because that's a good thing to be. And if you stand up on your hind legs and talk about how great you are or what you're doing is, it's a bad thing. I think we need to get over that. And um, and TED is a great platform um, for sharing your story and sharing your thoughts on, on what, what how the world should be. So I was really for me I'm like this it's lovely speaking with you live you know I 
it, I find th this is easier. Uh, the whole TED thing, normally when I speak as well, um, I, I plan a, a little bit, and if, especially if there's slides, but I mostly speak off the cuff. And the TED thing, you have to submit your talk in advance. They, they have to check that, you know, it's suitable. There's no plagiarism. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then you're not allowed to deviate from it. Gosh, no, that wouldn't suit me at all. I mean, I'm like you, just like being able to, to to talk around the, the the topic. But I guess that's a testament to you understanding your topic, isn't it? That's always one of the things that know the knowledge and you usually have much more in your head than you can actually ever put out. And it's about coherently putting that into a smaller uh, uh, amount. Um, look, that's really interesting. And we're coming to the end of our time and I can't miss up the opportunity to ask you um, about how many animals you must have at home for someone to be running a zoo i always have a picture in my head that there must be hundreds of animals skirted across uh, do you have any animals uh, at home and how do you keep the boundary oh boundaries that's interesting yeah i i have i have tortoises at home <laughs> and they're they all second hand through the years one was a confiscation i helped with at liverpool docks um and then um they all got dispersed and there were a few extras and I kept one on. One of them was a client when back in my vet days who was an old lady who uh, had to go into a care home and they wouldn't let her take a tortoise that <laughs> sat on her knee in an air raid shelter in the war. You know, wow. wow. Yeah. So I was like, I'll, I'll look after Ellie for you. So they're kind of adopted. And then I've got I've got two Labradors. Okay, so it's not quite the menagerie I pictured in my mind then from there. <laughs> yeah, it gets a bit boring with the Labradors, but they're lovely. And my final question to you, given all the, uh, you know, what you've talked about, what has surprised you the most about the animals that you look after? What What is it that, that, that it, it can be something funny, something sad, something hugely enigmatic? Uh, what surprises you uh, about the, the animals that you see or running a zoo? Oh, hard question. I don't know. I kind of, I kind of more flip it and go. Be, being close to an animal that's content is soul food for me. I think you know. You get. I'm in my office right now. I'm loving talking to you. Obviously, it's lovely. <laughs> but you know, you get a bit stressed, or or you know, something's going on. If I go and sit beside the chimps or the gorillas, that just it's. You know, I do, it's that being at one with nature thing really works for me. I first felt that, you know, very much in in Cameroon. You know, I'm not a morning person, but when I'm out in the forest, I'm up at four or five with a cup of coffee sitting in the by the trees, listening to the gorillas waking up just is my happy place. And I have that. I have that at Twycross, too. Wow. The serenity of, of listening to that must be incredible. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today, Sharon. I've been Dr. Luke Evans. I'm the MP for Bosworth and I've been joined by Dr. Sharon Redrow, OBE CEO of Twycross Zoo, the arc of species going forward. It's been an absolute pleasure. Join me next time for more general informal conversation on interesting topics. Thank you so much.